Warning. Due to violent and disturbing content, listener discretion is advised. What's up, creeps? Thanks for tuning in to episode 8 of Seeing Red. Last time we filled your brain with Bell Gunnis, aka Hell's Bell. Tonight we're going to tell you about a monster from the outback. But before that, just a quick reminder that we only have two episodes left before we take a brief break for adventuring and do further research, aka we're going to dominate this world. Mm-hmm. But be sure to tell all your creepy friends to catch the fuck up. But in the meantime, let's cuddle up. And talk about murder. Where are we going tonight, hot stuff? He comes from the land down under. Hopefully we'll get copyright struck for that because I'm such a good singer. But (laughs) we're about to fill all your holes with the backpack murderer himself, Ivan Malat. So he was born in Guilford, Australia and was born the son of a Croatian father named Stephen and his Australian mother named Margaret. Margaret was only 16 when she married Stephen and he was 34. I don't know how you do it down under, but Jesus Christ. But (laughs) Ivan was actually the fifth born out of 14 children. They had 10 boys and four girls. Holy cocks. (laughs) This poor woman's vagina. (laughs) dude i feel like if i got married at 16 i'd probably just be humping as well (laughs) yeah how do you even walk after that i feel like your parts would just fall out if you sneeze too hard ow (laughs) yeah but uh, apparently australia is not too different from the u.s where like the legal age of consent for marriage is 18 but if your parents give it the thumbs up Poo, one can get married at 16. And that's what I call good parenting. Fuck that noise. (laughs) So his criminal behavior began pretty young. um, And by the time he was 13, he was sent to this residential school. And people usually described Ivan a lot as good looking. He was a well-muscled boy and he had a fascination with guns and took care of himself a lot, so he was always trying to look fine. Um, his parents were hardworking, strict, kind of the usual. Neighbors say that uh, the police were over at the Malat house a lot, though. So I guess as the kids got older, they got into some trouble here and there. Uh, when he was 17, he ended up getting sent to juvenile detention home for theft. And in 64, he was arrested for breaking and entering. And a month late, a month after his release, he was arrested again for driving a stolen car. 
and then sentenced to two years hard labor for that, then arrested again at 23 for theft again. I'm assuming that the mom was working if all these kids are running rampant in that fucking house and the cops were there all the time. Yeah, if she wasn't working, she was taking care of this, like, enormous brood of children, so I'm sure it was hard to keep an eye on all of them all at once. Um, it's also interesting to note that uh, according to his, he, so he has an older brother named Boris. Uh, Boris ended up eventually changing his name to Stephen Miller, but we're going to keep calling him Boris because that's a cool ass name. And according to Boris, uh, Ivan, around the age of, I think it was like 17 or 18, he claims that Ivan shot this taxi driver named um, Neville Knight in the back. And the guy ends up getting paralyzed. But another guy got gets convicted of the crime. Yeah, I was reading into the brothers, like, transcripts. Because, like, after Ivan died, obviously, if you know him, he died in the last couple years. Um, He was, like, telling about how his brother, like, was fucking nuts when he was younger. And used to, like, go out at night and, like, hack up animals with machetes. And, like, talking about, like, trigger warning, by the way. Um chopping like dogs and shit in half and like bragging about it yeah and he would like intentionally run them over when he was out driving he would just like see an animal on the road and just Oof. you know yeah also but, animal abuse yeah but <laughs> it, it's also um i think important to mention that boris the guy who's making the brother that's making all these claims Ivan had actually had an 11-year affair with Boris's wife and ended up knocking her up. So I'm not saying that Boris shouldn't be mad about this, but he may also have an axe to grind. So I don't know if he's exaggerating or lying or whatever, but he might be a little bitter. I would mollywop the shit out of that motherfucker. <laughs> Okay, so shit starts to get dark. In 1971, he's arrested for kidnapping two 18-year-old girls and raping one of them. While he awaited trial, he actually faked his own suicide and apparently flees to New Zealand. He was re-arrested in 1974, but was acquitted and was free to go, starting a job as a truck driver. Which, I think all truck drivers are serial killers, don't at me. <laughs> I, I wanted so hard to find out how he faked the suicide, but I couldn't find shit on it. Could you find anything on it? I didn't. I don't even know how the fuck you would get away with that. Like, wouldn't they check your pulse and shit? How do you just, like, possum, dip? <laughs> <laughs> and dip off to New Zealand? Um, and, like, also, we're, we're, I'm going to bring it back to Boris again, because he's the one that ratted Ivan out for these rapes, right? Or this rape. But he literally stayed quiet for years about this supposed shooting in the taxi, but rats him out for this rape right away. Like, why hold your tongue about one thing but not the other? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't understand it either. Yeah, so... I don't know. I'm sorry I'm taking a little bit of everything Boris says with a grain of salt. 
I, after I watched that 60 Minutes, I honestly felt a lot more for him, though. Like, obviously he was upset, but, like, he literally was like, oh, this dude drug our family name through the fucking shit, ruined our whole family, and then, like, his whole family turns against him because he's, like, our brother is a piece of shit. So, like, I don't know. I feel for him. I think he just romanced you with his sexy Australian accent. Ew, he's friggin' wrinkly. He's, like, old <laughs> enough to be my grandfather. Yeah, but Australian accents are absolutely the sexiest, and I will believe anything Chris Hemsworth ever tells me. Oh, so you're trying to paper bag Boris? <laughs> yeah, I- I'm a paper bag Boris. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Okay, so in 1975, Ivan meets a 16-year-old girl named Karen Duck, who happens to be pregnant with Ivan's cousin's child. Um, And according to her, Ivan raped her and, like, kind of took possession of her. Um, She says that he was very abusive and controlling and all that, Um, but they was married anyway in 1983. But she left him in 87 because of the domestic violence and everything. Um, and right after she left him, apparently he just went and burned down her her parents' garage. You know, normal stuff. What the fuck is going on in the outback? <laughs> like, everyone's just fucking each other? I, I mean, I guess if you live in the bush. I guess if you live in the unintended. bush... It- he's living in everybody's bush especially (laughs) his brother's wives not mine (laughs) yeah because by this point he'd already banged two of his sister-in-laws and like married his cousin's pregnant girlfriend like isn't there somebody like available down at the supermarket or at the bank like I, if I was his fucking mom, I would have just, like, every time I saw him, I would just squirt bottom in the face and be like, <laughs> knock the shit off! <laughs> like when your dog gets a red rocket. <laughs> oh, stop. Or when my cat's lapping her asshole. <laughs> okay. Bring it back. So, shit begins to hit the fan. In September of 92, hikers find the remains of two girls in the Belangelo State Forest near Sydney. The Belangelo Forest is an area spanning over 8,700 acres. This shit is dense. It's heavily wooded. There's, It's like three kilometers from this highway, which yeah. connects Hume, the Hume Highway, which connects Sydney and Cam- Vera. I can't fucking speak Australian. We're so bad at pronunciation. <laughs> I actually know all of these. <laughs> well, I'm not traveled. Okay. Um, the bodies were identified as Caroline Clark, she was 21, and Joanna Walters, she was 22. The women were British tourists who were last seen in Sydney in April of that year, hitchhiking like all the way to Adelaide. So the autopsies found that both of these women were sexually assaulted. Walters had been gagged and stabbed 14 times, five in her back and neck area that would have paralyzed the shit out of her. Um, two of the ribs have been severed, and it's also noted that she showed no defensive wounds on her arms or hands. Clark had been shot 12 times in the head, her hands found stretched over her head, and she had a single knife wound in her back. Four bullets were actually removed from her skull and put into evidence to help them try and, like, find the murder weapon, like, later on. It's speculated that he used Clark's corpse as target practice, hence all the bullet wounds in her head. Um... 
Also, they found this primitive brick fireplace near the bodies with like a ton of cigarette butts and spent 22 caliber cartridge cases were like also found around the scene. An extensive search of the surrounding area actually produced no more bodies at that time, but they didn't know if there was actually a serial killer on the loose, but um, the police like denied it at first because they didn't have anything to go on. But despite the abundance of evidence, the police made little progress over the following weeks, but everything kind of slowed down because they had no leads. Like, who? how would you find someone that just goes in and out and does shit like this? Mm-hmm. But they were trying to go back through, like, suspicious, like, disappearances and everything, trying to link shit together, and they couldn't figure it out. But didn't they, like, hire a forensic psychiatrist? Yes, they did. So, um, Dr. Rod Milton was actually, um, a forensic psychologist that, like, put shit together, like, saying that he was in his mid-30s, probably had a history of aggression due to, like, shit going on, like, with the bodies and everything. Like, you can clearly tell, like, it was aggressive. Um, who shoots someone in the head that many times? Like, you're fucked. But, um... And it was also someone that had to have been familiar with the terrain because obviously they got in and they got out. And spent all that time there with no fear. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, they knew they weren't going to be found doing it because it's a big-ass forest. So Mm. he didn't really believe that there was a serial killer at the time, but they thought that the serial killer, like, the killer or killers, like, there was two. Like, they had to have had two people to be able to carry all this shit out, like, at once. I think that's a normal assumption to make, especially when you have two simultaneous victims. I think it's hard for people to fathom um, one person being able to take control of two people because they're outnumbered. But I don't know. I think threats go a long way to be able to subdue more than one person at a time. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, like, make one tie the other one up. If you're held at gunpoint, you're going to do whatever you think you have to to survive. Well, I also also think they don't want to always jump the gun and be like, oh, it's a serial killer, because then everyone's going to freak the fuck out. Like, everyone's going to be like, holy shit, we're not safe, whatever. Like, all that shit. So they want to be like, oh... Like, let's keep it contained. It's one person. Like, you know what I mean? No, yeah, I agree with them not wanting to say that it's a serial killer because you are going to cause panic. And there's really no no basis for that at this point. Like, at this point, you only have two bodies that you found in a forest. Clearly, you have a killer, but that doesn't necessarily mean a serial killer. So I think it was smart for them to kind of try to quash that. But... But they was wrong because (laughs) they end up finding another grave in December of 93. And it was only like a few miles away from the first grave site. Um, Here they found the remains of two Australian citizens named uh, James Gibson and Deborah Everest. And uh, they were both 19. They were last seen December of 89 while they were hitchhiking to this festival. Uh, Gibson had suffered eight stab wounds, including a large cut across his spine. His zipper was down, but the button hadn't been rebuttoned. The wound in his back had uh, severed his spine so severely that it went through like three vertebrae 
and split the canal that holds the co the spinal column. Uh, these wounds were assumed to be made by um, a Bowie knife. Everest had been beaten um, so bad, in fact, that she had two skull fractures and her jaw was broken. There were knife wounds on her forehead and she had been stabbed once in the lower back. And once again, there was a, a fight, like an old fire found close by. So they kind of made the connect between the first crime scene and this crime scene. Oh, these poor ladies. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about spinal cord injuries for a minute. Fuck it up. Fuck it up. So they're not really being specific as, like, super specific as to where these wounds um, in the back were, you know, were given. But, so the way spinal cord injuries work, especially, like, the severing of the spinal cord... So wherever the spinal cord is severed from that point down, that's where you become paralyzed. So say it's mid-back, um, then you're going to be paralyzed from like the waist down, but your upper body, your brain is still able to make the connection to the upper part of your body. So if he wanted to, like I think they were suggesting that they severed the spinal cord enough to paralyze the entirety of these people's bodies, um, but if they, if he did do that, that would actually cause a lot of respiratory distress. So his victims could have, in fact, suffocated before any of, like, the other horrific things that he did to them. And as horrible as suffocation sounds, um, I think it's probably preferable to all the horrible things that could have happened to them while they were still awake and unable to defend themselves. <laughs> I was gonna say, that's the most traumatizing part. It's like, either you hope that you, like, fucking, fucking choke to death and die, or sit there and watch yourself be mutilated, but you can't feel it. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, like, that, the idea of that is one of the most horrifying things I can imagine. Oh, yeah. So, the police search the forest for over a month before they find their next victim. So in October, 21-year-old Simone Schmidl was discovered. She was a tourist from Germany who was last seen hitchhiking in January of 91, but she was, and she was, like, going around looking for work, living her best life. But yet again, cigarette butts and a fire were there, so we have multiple calling cards here. But sometime after her disappearance, they actually found her glasses and her camping gear thrown into the brush in Victoria. And the autopsy re revealed that her spine had been severed in two places. So she was paralyzed before being stabbed six more times. So you've seen Wolf Creek, right? I honestly don't friggin' remember. Okay, I've watched <laughs> Wolf Creek many times, and I actually just watched it again yesterday to refresh my memory a little bit. Well, you should have told me to watch it, you dingus. Well, I'm sorry. You were <laughs> you were playing Cards Against Humanity. I was quarantined! <laughs> um, so, this movie is way fictionalized, just like, for the record. Um, but they actually do show a scene where the bad guy severs this woman's spine and i don't know in my head i i actually always imagined simone schmittle in this position um go watch wolf creek it's a good movie it is not as much about ivan a lot as 
people lead you to believe. But watch it anyway. Good movie. <laughs> Guess I gotta watch it with you guys because I'm out of the fucking loop. <laughs> Sorry. I don't like watch it. Is it an older movie? It's a few years old. It's not maybe about ten years old. Oh, because I like I'm still traumatized from that Ted Bundy one I watched when I was younger with what's his name? Wasn't it the guy from um CSI or some shit? I don't know. Had like made for TV Jeffrey Dahmer one. It had me fucked up. Uh, this but will anyway. fuck you up, but don't look at it as like legit Ivan Malat story because it ain't. Yeah. All right. So back on track. In November of 1992, they find two more bodies Gabor Neugebauer, 21, and Anya Hapschit, 20 years old. They were both German tourists who were last seen hitchhiking from King's Crossing. But they hadn't been seen until like just after Christmas of 91. Neugebauer had been strangled and shot six times in the head. And Hapshit was found nude from the waist down and her head was missing as well as the first two vertebrae. Uh, she seemed to have been in like a kneeling position when she was decapitated with something like a sword or a machete. So some of my fellow Gen Xers out there will remember back in the days of MTV when we had actual music videos. And there was a video for the song Runaway Train by Soul Asylum. And legit, the first time I seen this video as a teenager, like I seriously cried my face off. It was so sad. Because like the end of the video, they put up pictures of missing teenagers and, and kids um, and I, I didn't realize at the time that for every country, they use different missing people, which makes sense, I suppose. Um, so when they release it in Australia, um, these two, Gabor and Anya, were the pictures that they showed, or two of the pictures that they showed at the end of this video. So I always thought that was an interesting side note to this case. I have not seen the video, and we actually looked for it, right? And we couldn't find it? I couldn't find the Australian version of it. You can still go on YouTube or whatever and find the regular video, but I don't think they do the missing things at the end anymore. Like, they cut it off for whatever reason. It gets definitely dated by this point. And some of these people were found, and some of them were not found alive or ever at all, but... Go watch the video anyway. It's a great video. It's a great song. Okay, so obviously we keep telling you guys about the dump sites and everything. So it seems like the killer had spent a good amount of time there with the victims during and after the murders since there was clearly like a camp set up. And I'm not exactly, like, I didn't look at a map or anything to see, like, how deep he's going to, like, sit there and, like, set up a camp or if he was, like, in and out after. Like, I don't know if he spent the night next to the bodies or anything. No disrespect. But they always found spent built, um, bullet casings. And when the bodies of the victims were examined, it was determined that some of them were actually tortured and didn't die right away. So the New South Wales police set up a task force of about 20 detectives and analysts and set a reward for $500,000 for information leading to the killer or killers because they're still open to it at this point. And with that being said, hundreds of calls were coming in with people freaking out. The citizens were worried. Like, it's all these young girls. Like, no one's, like, trying to go in the woods, obviously. And people were scared. 
Yeah, the media ends up dubbing the murderer the backpack killer. And there is like this large media coverage and people are calling left and right. And some had actually seen the victims. That's how we know when they were last seen because of these people calling in. Um, but nobody had reported seeing anyone pick them up. So this special database had to be created to manage all of the incoming information and suspects. They they literally had just like piles of folders and information on probably a ton of useless shit, but they didn't know what was useless and what was useful at that point. <laughs> I feel like that happens with all, like, phone lines, though. Like, people will still get tips years and years later, but they have to sit there and look into every little thing and make sure it's not some, like, Karen at a Walgreens going, I saw him! Like, you just, oh, that, they gotta pick through it. Yeah, and that shit happens all the time. People just get bored and call, and they, I don't know, want some kind of recognition or attention and just make shit up, and it's disgusting. And it fucking derails the investigation, you know, you get one call, you have to follow up. Now that's like three hours of the investigation time that you're not getting back. You could have been spending that time doing something useful, but you got these whack jobs that, you know, like you said, are just like, oh, I seen them at the, the Sunoco. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a man named Paul Onions makes a report in the 90s, like 1990, and he had accepted a ride from a man in a silver Nissan, like, four-wheel drive truck. The driver said his name was Bill, and he becomes uneasy because the driver starts making racist remarks. So the driver stops not too far from the forest, and he was going to grab some music tapes out of the back of the truck, but instead pulls out a pistol and a rope, proclaiming that he was going to rob the shit out of him. So Onions threw off his seatbelt and hauled the fuck out of there. And the driver shot at him until he actually, like, waves down another car and escapes. So Onions got taken by the motorist to the police station to file a report on him. Yeah, so, like, he files this report and... Nothing much is done about it. Like, apparently the cops hand him 10 bucks so he can get back to Sydney from the police station. And basically they just threw his file in the drawer and didn't look at it for, you know, who knows how, well, until, until when? <laughs> I'm assuming that, like, they were like, oh, it was attempted burglary. Like, oh, well, like just a freak thing yeah, but like, he, literally, he literally shot at this guy like no, i'm not trying that. to throw just... shade on australia but what kind of okay corral shit you got going on out there <laughs> that a shooting is just like meh added to the pile the fucking bush yeah so Onion went to the police again during the investigation to remind the police about his incident. And the police were able to find his report, probably had dust on it, mm -hmm. and together they compiled a composite sketch. So between this database and reports from Onions and the woman who actually picked him up, um, a girlfriend of a co-worker of Ivan Malat um, actually identifies him and is like, he becomes a suspect. So Onions was flown out to Australia where he identified Malat from a video lineup and giving police the excuse they needed to actually get a warrant on him to search um, the various Malat properties because they have 900 fucking kids. <laughs> 
Yeah, Onions actually, um, he lived, he lives in England. I assume he still lives there. So he had been visiting Australia when the initial um, bullshit happened with the, the robbery or whatever. Um, and apparently news travels from England, from Australia to England because, you know, Onions calls back to say, hey, remember a few years ago when this happened? And at that point, they were so desperate to get an ID on a lot that they did pay for him to come from England to Australia. So now this is the second time the police have Paul, paid for Paul Onion's travels. <laughs> Good work, guys. Yeah. So depending on who you ask, Ivan Malat was either the nicest man you'd ever want to meet or he was like a snarky son of a bitch. He liked weapons and, you know, so did like all the guys in his family and probably a lot of men in the outback. Um, but everybody also knew about this abduction and rape that had happened back in 71. Um, it was also noted by police that three of his brothers owned property near the Belangolo State Forest. And one of his cars um, that he used to own was, in fact, a silver Nissan four wheel drive truck. You know, like the one I, uh, the one Paul Onions talked about. But Malat had sold this vehicle two months after Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters were discovered. But the new owner of this car showed the police a 22 caliber bullet that he had found under the driver's seat. So they went to Malat's place of work, you know, um, to look for his time card and found out that he was not at work at the times they suspected these killings of happening. So. Boop, no alibi. You fucking idiot. <laughs> Did he really think selling his car was the way to, you know, clear him of these crimes? Did he really think that that was going to be, that he was so smart that if he just got rid of the car, they would never trace it back to him? It's like the most famous case in Australia at the time. They're going to make that connect. Like everybody's thirsty to rat this guy out. Oh, yeah. I I can't believe he left a bullet casing under the seat. Like, when you, like, give away a vehicle, wouldn't you search that shit knowing that you've done this shit and make sure there's nothing left behind? Yeah. Not not smart, Ivan. Not smart. Freaking Ivan. Okay, so 50 police actually surround his house on May 22nd of 94, and they called and gave Ivan the opportunity to come out, but they were ignored. So suspecting that there were guns on the property, because let's be real, all the bullet casings, I wouldn't trust that bitch either. Uh -uh. And they thought maybe there was innocent women inside, so they called again and convinced him to come out to the door. He was handcuffed and his girlfriend, Shalinda Hughes, a Malat family friend since they were younger, was led away and both were taken down to the police station. <laughs> Yeah, so Australia doesn't exactly have Miranda rights the way we do in the United States. Um, the rules are kind of the same. The police just aren't obligated to read them to you. Um, but they are obligated to kind of tell you, um, hey, you don't have to answer any questions. You don't have to be interviewed. And you are allowed to contact a lawyer and a loved one. Um so it's kind of similar to Miranda over there. They just don't call it that. And it's not like we see on, you know, TV or if you've been arrested yourself. They don't have like a whole thing that they have to read out to you that you have to agree to. You just kind of 
know to call your lawyer and I don't know your best friend to come bail you out or whatever <laughs> okay so his girlfriend actually supports his innocence throughout this whole shit and um she actually never visits him in prison and seems to disappear for a while after that which i don't blame the bitch but i wouldn't want to be associated with this motherfucker either yeah I which mean, makes had- me think like did she fucking know about it I'm wondering, because it's not like she was some fly-by-night girlfriend. I mean, she wasn't the wife of any of his brothers or anything like that, but they she had been friends with the Malat family since she was, like, 14 years old. Um, I'm not sure how old they are at this point, but she had a, you know, she had a connection with him on a deeper level than regular boyfriend-girlfriend. Um, so maybe she knew something. Um I don't know, but she stuck by him, which a lot of people seem to have done, but she didn't stick by him enough to, like, visit him or live happily ever after or whatever. So, at the same time, there was another raid carried out on the on May 22nd, which revealed a huge amount of evidence linking Malat to the crimes, including a lot of personal things that belonged to the victim, like clothing and there was there were sleeping bags that belonged to Simone Schmidl and Deborah Everest um other camping equipment as well as like an actual shit ton of, ton of ammunition um they found parts of disassembled weapons including a 22 caliber rifle a long curved cavalry sword um was found in his mother's home that could very well have been the one used to behead Anya Habshed. Um, it was found like in a lock cover or something. And there was a bag of Malats that was found to have um, a 12 inch long Bowie knife, which, you know, was connected to, or we assume was used in one of the crimes. Um, pretty damning was a photo of his girlfriend, Shalinder, wearing. Uh, a tank top that was identical to the one to one owned by Carolyn Clark. And in the garage, there was this purple headband that was very similar to a headband found around the skull of uh, Simone Schmidl. And yeah, that with a ton of the various gun parts and all that, he, you know, pretty much the cops got him. Like, what the fuck? Him. I think that bitch fucking knew something. You think so? I would have to assume she knew. Like, I don't know. That's just fucking... That's too much, like, coincidental shit. But, like, obviously... I mean, I don't know how their jurisdictions and shit are. They can't get... I mean, I guess they didn't... If she disappears, you can't really get her on shit. If they're like, yeah, we got the killer. Fuck it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, but a lot of the stuff that was found is... um, Like, why would she think anything about it? Like... Lots of people have guns and lots of people have sleeping bags and clothing. Um, I know one of the things that was found was a canteen that actually had Simone's name on it, but he had like burned it trophy. off or something. Yeah, it was a trophy, <laughs> but like they, I, Simone's nickname was Simmy and Simmy had been carved into it, but he tried to like sand it off, but they were able to see it under ultraviolet light. Like it was legit her canteen. But I don't know that Shalinder would have known this. Like, so he has a Bowie knife. Tons of people have Bowie knives. 
So she has, you know, he gave her a tank top one day. Maybe he was like, hey, my sister didn't want this anymore. Do you want it? I think True. she could have been, like, blissfully unaware. Naive, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's it's a 50-50 split. <laughs> I, I You say 50-50. I'm, like, 20-80, maybe. <laughs> okay. So Malat was arrested and taken into custody for questioning, where he was basically evading everything and super fucking uncooperative. So he was initially charged with the attack on Onions, and then goes on to get charged with seven murders because the ballistic evidence matched his weapon to all the attacks. Obviously, there's fucking bullet casings they found all over the ground, in the victims, everything, so there's no way in shit that he was gonna get out of this. He remained in custody to await trial, and he engaged the same lawyer who had represented him during his 1971 rape trial and acquittal. His name was John Marsden, so on May 30th, he's charged with the seven murders. Um, at his bail hearing, Malat actually fires Marzen, who tries to persuade him to plead guilty. So Malat's trial was set for June 1995, but the case was then delayed um, over like shit with his not having legal aid. So he finally went ahead, um, full glare of international publicity on March 1996. So Malat was charged with seven murders as well as his attack on onions. In March of 1996, his trial actually started and it lasts 15 weeks and he pleads not guilty, blaming that even some of his own family members did the crimes instead of him. Wow. What a little beauty. <laughs> and it's fucked up because like his whole family thinks he's innocent, except for Boris over there. But he's sitting there trying to blame his family, and his family's like, nah, he's innocent. He's done. He's like, fuck it. Yeah. I think it's interesting that he fired that lawyer, though. Like, that lawyer hooked you up. He got you acquitted of all rape charges. So, I guess what he the just fuck? Yeah, I guess he just didn't want to plead guilty. Like, he refused to plead guilty um, to the detriment of himself, I guess. I wonder what would have happened if he had pled guilty. Oh, yeah, I for sure think he was like, <laughs> like, yeah, I think he really, to... yeah, I think he really believed he was going to get away with this. Me too. I honestly think he was like, hmm, I'm done. Yeah. So at the trial, um, Onions was the first of the prosecution's witness witnesses, and he was followed by the testimony of a lot of the family members of the victims. Then they introduced hundreds of exhibits and crime scene photos and expert testimony, you know, the usual. So prosecution took 12 weeks to present, and then the defense ends up calling Mo Ivan to the stand and he denies any involvement. But the jury, the jury was really lapped with a bad impression of him during cross-examination. Um, I guess because he's like a really gruff guy, not well-spoken, things like that. They probably just didn't like him. Um, so, and the defense tried to imply as well that a lot of Ivan's family members may have committed the murders instead. And they were setting Ivan up. But no one was really buying that shit. 
because after all the evidence and all the witnesses were presented on July 27th of 96, he's found guilty of all seven murders as well as the abduction of Paul Onions. And, you know, when Ivan was asked if he had anything to say, he simply said, I'm not guilty. That's all I have to say. Um, he's in, he gets sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And interestingly, on his first day of grown-up prison, he got his ass whooped by another inmate. Um, a year later, he makes an escape attempt with this drug trafficker named George. But the day after, because, like, the escape had failed, George ends up being found hanging in his cell. And then immediately after that, Ivan's transferred to this maximum security prison. Um, yeah. He wasn't charged for that escape attempt, though. Because they probably figured, why bother with all that? He's already in life, you know, in prison for life. So we ain't going to waste the state's money or whatever they call it over there. It's probably not the state, but. Yeah, I think that's really weird that the dude was found hanging, though. Like, did they, like, not be able to escape? And he was like, could he have hung him or something? Or do you think he just hung himself because he's like, fuck, I'm stuck here? Yeah, I don't know. It seems really sus that he would be, he would just be dead the next day after this failed yeah. attempt. I feel like maybe Ivan was pissed. Maybe he blamed George for them not being able to escape. So he got pissed. But I don't, yeah. know, I don't know that I think Ivan's clever enough to make something look like a suicide either. I don't know. But just a fun side note, the death penalty was abolished in New South Wales in 1985, which is like obviously like 10 years after it happens. But we think if anyone deserved to be killed, it's that motherfucker. Yeah, despite whatever your feelings are on the death penalty, we ain't going to argue about it, but <laughs> this guy deserved all the cyanide gas. Ugh, stop, that shit creeps me out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so police maintain that Malat had been involved in a lot more than which like the seven he was actually convicted for so in the summer of 2001 he was ordered to give evidence at an inquest into different disappearances of these three other backpackers but no case has been brought against him like due to the lack of evidence in those cases um similar inquiries were actually launched in 2003 in relation to the disappearance of two nurses jillian jameson and deborah balkan and again, in 2005, relating to these disappearances, um, there was a hitchhiker named Annette Briffa, but no charges were ever filed in her case either. And these three women actually still remain missing. So on November 8, 2004, Malaki gave a televised interview in which he denied actually that any of his family had been implicated in the murders. Because he's a stupid bitch. <laughs> so, on July 18th of 2005, Malat's former lawyer, Marsden, who had actually been fired before the murder trial, made a deathbed statement in which he claimed that Malat had been assisted by an unknown woman. The killings of the two British, like, helped him kill the two British backpackers. Which, bitch, now that I think about it, could have been the girlfriend. If you want to believe his deathbed confession, sure. But he actually yeah. said on the deathbed, he said that uh, that Ivan Malat probably killed these backpackers. And if he did, he had a female accomplice. That just sounds very 
vague. Yeah. Yeah. You just want to believe that it's that way, but I'm going <laughs> to Because you were always trying to blame women for the fucked up nature of men. No, I'm not. I'm all for vagina power, but I fucking think that sometimes these bitches be getting fucking dick whipped, pardon my French, and that they're helping these motherfuckers and the men are getting in trouble. I don't think they're all as innocent as everyone wants to think they are. I don't know. And I'll fight about it. (laughs) Clearly. Okay, so back to the case. On September 7th of 2005, his final appeal was refused and Malat stayed in prison for the rest of his natural life. But like we mentioned earlier, in May of 2015, Malat's brother Boris actually comes forward and says... That he's responsible for the shooting of the taxi driver, Neville Knight, that happened in 62. Steve Van Apparen, a former homicide detective who serves as a consultant with the LAPD and FBI, among others, was actually called in to conduct polygraph tests with Boris and Alan Dillon, the man that was convicted of paralyzing Knight. Um, The test convinced him that both men were telling the truth and that Malat actually, in fact, shot him. And on Monday, May 13, 2019, Malat was taken from Goldburn Supermax Prison to the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, where he underwent tests for lumps they found in his throat and stomach. It's believed that he was diagnosed with a so- like terminal esophagus cancer. Um, he goes on to die on October 27th of 2019 at the hospital wing of Long Bay Correctional Center. He claimed his innocence until the very end. Well, being the cynic that I always am, I'm just going to say, fuck polygraph tests. Like, I don't believe in polygraph tests at all. I think they're bunk. So having this guy from the LAPD, FBI, whatever, conducting this polygraph test means nothing to me. I'm not saying that Ivan didn't shoot this taxi driver. Maybe he did. He probably did. But it's not the poly the polygraph test that's convincing me of any of that. Just saying. But what about polygraph tests do you not believe? Okay. Why do you not like them? Okay. First of all, everyone reacts to stress differently. So having a same baseline test for everyone is not going to work. Also, depending on who's reading the the polygraph test, a different outcome can be seen. It's not like it's printing out words on the paper. It's mm-hmm. these fucking lines. And some people are trained differently in how to read them. Some people interpret them in different ways. Like, in my opinion, don't ever fucking take a polygraph test. If you are ever arrested and they want to give you a polygraph test, or if you're ever being interviewed and they're like, hey, come take a lie detector, just say fucking no. Because I'm going to tell you right now, in the United States, they can lie to you about what your polygraph test results even are. They could be like, yo, you failed this to get you to confess, even if you didn't fail it. Yeah, I mean, when I go to the doctor, I have anxiety and my pressure is always through the roof. And I'm like, well, I don't like strangers I don't know touching me. So I feel like I would not be good at those tests. (laughs) Yeah, and you're already going. This bitch is lying. And you're already going to be amped up. You're sitting there talking to the police about all this scary stuff. How is your blood pressure not going to rise and your heartbeat going to race? And you know, how are you not going to sweat? Like that's scary shit. But then you have psychopaths out there who aren't phased by anything. We're talking about people who, you know, chop up little kids and have sex with dead bodies. 
maybe they don't get nervous in front of the police. So maybe their heart isn't racing and their blood pressure is chill. Like it's, it's too inaccurate. That's why it's not able to be used in court because it's bullshit. It's not accurate enough. Yeah. Thank you I for coming I mean, to my I, TED talk. Right. I mean, I don't know. I've seen people do it where they like, they take the test and like, they know they haven't done anything. They're just like, Oh, you passed everything. Like you're good to go. Like, I think to a certain extent, like it could pick up shit. Like if I knew I was telling the truth, would my shit still be higher? Probably because I'm fucking a nervous wreck internally. But like, I mean, I don't know if I have nothing to hide. I don't feel like I would be that worried about it. I don't know. I just, I don't find them reliable and I don't, I just don't fucking trust them. Not one bit. Oh, I don't trust cops in general. Just throwing that bitch out there, but. I I don't know about that. I'm saying I don't trust the tests. I don't always trust the tactics. I have, I have love for some cops and hate for others. Oh no, I respect cops, (laughs) but there's obviously like, after we like, I know we talked about this before, but like all that shit with like the whole interrogation process Mm. and everything. Which we can get into that another yeah, that, day because we'll go that's off. A, yeah, that's a whole <laughs> another podcast. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. <laughs> so, do you think he killed these other people? What's your What's your input? I don't know, dude. I mean, if the force is that fucking big, I just like I don't think it would be an impossible thing for him to do it but then again they're like oh we can't find like these girls and whatever and all these people are seeing this shit on tv so who's to say like someone else didn't do it or that they just got fucking lost you know like it's a heavily wooded area again disregard anything you've seen in wolf creek because it's not like this big sandy outback area with sand dunes this is like heavily pined forest like it's dense um I don't, I've gotten lost in the woods for hours before. Mm-hmm. It's not out of the realm of possibility that somebody stumbled and, you know, wildlife took care of the rest. I, well, maybe- you have to think, well, there's all those cases of people that, like, get turned around or, like, what if you fall and break your fucking ankle and it's like, no one's gonna fucking find you out there. In the 90s, like, obviously they weren't on their fucking iPhone 5 fucking mm. texting to come get picked up. Yeah, there's no GPS, so, like, dingoes came and took these people away for all we know. Like, You're obsessed with the fucking dingo, dude. <laughs> dingoes ate my baby. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. Dingoes. <laughs> r.i.p that's sad (laughs) okay so before we wrap this up i wanted to tell like an interesting little after story so back in 2010 ivan's 18 year old great nephew matthew malat along with a buddy of his um murdered the 17 year old boy named david alterline atrelone atrelone david atrelone um so the two of them drove David to the Belangelo Forest under the ruse of, like, celebrating David's birthday. They were like, hey, it's your birthday. Let's come out to the forest and we'll drink and we'll smoke and we'll have a good time. But that's not how it went down. So Matthew ends up interrogating David while his buddy records the entire thing on his phone. Um, apparently Matthew was pissed off about supposedly David talking shit about him and you know you can actually you can read the transcripts online I was able to find it 
I probably don't want to hear a recording of that. Mm-hmm. But the recording does end with Matthew um, striking David in the head with a double-bladed axe. Um, and Matthew later brags that that's just what Malats do. And he ends up being sentenced to 43 years in prison for the murder of David. The whole family's fucked. Actually, the whole family's not fucked. I know. Just the boys. Just some (laughs) of the boys. We just pick and choose. Yeah, like, most of the other ones, they they have, like, little criminal records, like, petty shit, car theft, things like that. But, you know, I'm just saying that when Matthew was little, Ivan used to babysit him. So... That's the second case where someone's, like, nephew or kid has, like, ended up doing shit, too. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe he thought he was a badass because Ivan Malat was his Put respect on the name. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I wonder how how much of the family is supporting Matthew in this. The way they supported Ivan. I wonder if the whole family has Matthew's back now, too. Like, this guy is literally being recorded murdering someone. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's fucked. Like, the whole thing is just fucked. Like, I can't, like... I don't know. They were just, like... When I watched those 60 Minutes with Boris, like, he was just saying how, like, the mother and, like, the sisters and everything, like, fully believed that he was innocent. And I was just sitting there watching this because like i didn't really know that much about this case until i watched it like i read the news when he died and everyone was like oh he's dead like let's bring up the thing like after charles manson died everyone brought his shit back up again but like when i was watching it i was just like dude what the fuck like you literally have these people's shit that he didn't know in your like his house and you're gonna believe him like what the fuck like ballistics literally matched we're not just saying hey the casings were the same caliber as the weapon like ballistics test like the striations and all that shit they literally matched those casings to that specific gun like that's irrefutable evidence oh exactly so like how dull are you and like they this poor guy like ends up being like fucking ostracized by his own family because he's like no that piece of shit did it <laughs> like what the fuck yeah but at some point he's like fuck this whole Malat name i'm gonna be steve miller now and i'll catch you later even though he goes on tv and now everybody knows what he looks like and who he is which is kind of counterproductive but I mean, I think he's older and he's like, my brother's dead. I don't really give a fuck anymore. <laughs> That's probably true. Okay, y'all. That concludes our tale of Ivan Mott. Um, We hope you actually enjoyed it. Um, Please join us next time when we discuss the killer couple, Charlene and Gerald Gallagher. And that's going to be a gruesome one. So come prepared. Strong trigger warnings. Don't listen if you have little people around you. (laughs) And as always, thank you for listening and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for extra content and episode announcements and more. Special thank you to Zipscribs for our gorgeous cover art. Make sure to hop over to his Instagram and show him some love. Shout out to Brent Allman for our kick-ass musical score. And a special thank you to Stephen Sweeney, our patient and talented editor. That's it for tonight, folks. Until next time, remember to keep it creepy. He comes.
comes from the land down under. Bum, 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 bum. 